Welcome to Terragrams. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone, and I'll be your host for the 19th delivery of Terragrams. In this dispatch, we are in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and are joined by John Beardsley. John is a senior lecturer in the Department of Landscape Architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where he teaches courses in landscape architectural history, theory, and writing. Concurrently, he serves as Director of Garden and Landscape Studies at Dumbarton Oaks in Washington, D.C. John has authored numerous books, including the well-recognized Earthworks and Beyond, Contemporary Art and the Landscape. In addition to teaching and writing, he has curated exhibitions for the Hirshhorn Museum, Cochrane Gallery of Art in Washington, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and the Spoleto Festival in Charleston. His interests have taken him deep into the field of environmental and land art, African folk and vernacular art, as well as the landscape of the non-formal city. Terragrams is happy to welcome John Beardsley. John, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your busy week at the end of the semester and joining us at Terragrams. Thank you very much. Your book, Earthworks and Beyond, Contemporary Art and the Landscape, has been through four editions, probably sold thousands of copies. Um, what do you think has catalyzed its success? And has the success of the book surprised you? To some extent, it surprises me because I, when I wrote the book, it wasn't clear to me how important landscape was going to be in the larger cultural debate of the late 20th century. Uh, the book was first written in the early 80s when the environmental movement was just emerging, when, uh, when people were just beginning to tune into the importance of landscape as a forum for cultural discussion. And I think over the years it's um, become apparent that landscape is one of the key arenas for cultural debate uh, as we head into the 21st century. And so to some extent the book is part of a much larger phenomenon in, of uh, where we're reconnecting with landscape in important ways. Why do you think this phenomenon is occurring and why do you think it's happened uh, at the time it did? Well, there, there are a few more important things than landscape at the moment. Uh, in, a, in an era of dwindling resources, in an era of climate change, uh, in an era when uh, we, we need to adapt to uh, a changing environment, landscape is enormously important. Um, moreover, I think landscape is one of the chief forums for articulating cultural values and how we relate to landscape and nature more broadly is a really um, significant part of, of cultural expression and a significant part of, more than that, significant part of, uh, of uh, uh, ideology even. So um, I think, it, it, and not that earthworks themselves or not that land art itself necessarily addresses all those things, but it's, I think it's a, a, a player in terms of the discussion about our cultural values and our, our uh, appreciation of landscape. Relative to some of the um, global environmental topics today, one could look at earthworks as a very superficial <clears throat> gesture towards uh, uh, marking and making significant the environment. But would you agree with this or are there examples from the, the, the early body of land art that actually do begin to make the connection to the bigger environmental issues we're, we're contending with? Well, there have always been multiple strands of land art. 
Uh, and the best known strand is represented by artists like Michael Heiser and Walter de Maria and Robert Smithson, uh, who, yes, did large scale work that, uh, that was environmentally ambiguous at best. Uh, I mean, some people thought Heiser's work in particular really was a, an assault on the landscape. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Smithson's work was much more nuanced in the sense that he recognized the, the role that art could play in remediating landscape. He embraced um, the sort of uh, both human and natural disturbance in the landscape and uh, was, was, uh, uh, had more ambitions for land art in terms of, of uh, making it contribute to the, to the improvement of landscape. But there was, an, there was a whole other strand in land art from the beginning that was more evident in, in European art in the, in the 70s the work of people like Joseph Boyce and Richard Long and uh, Hamish Fulton and others who uh, were whose work was less intrusive uh, you know the the English artists in particular connected with the idea of the walk or the ramble as a form mm -hmm. of art and their their work was um, much more subtle and and much more nuanced in terms of its um, presence in the landscape and so there was a uh, there was a thread that's been developed globally in more recent years of artists who engage with environmental issues, whose work is more a celebration of landscape and even contributes to developing a kind of uh, ethic uh, of uh, not, not disturbing or, um, or not intruding upon the landscape. Have Heitzer and Long been in the same room with one another? I don't think they, they uh, have much to do with each other. If they had to exchange <laughs> words. Well, how, would, how would the conversation go? Well, it would be pretty awkward. Um, uh, it would be pretty awkward because neither one of them is uh, really uh, very verbal. I, I think it might be kind of testy. <laughs> do you see this body of work, do you see that it's evolved beyond the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and into uh, the 90s? And, uh, oh, and sure. And, and, and who, are the, who are some of the important artists making significant cont contributions? Well, it, it's evolved in a number of ways. I mean, I think uh, it's influenced a whole younger genera generation of artists who are much more involved, as I say, in a kind of a pursuit of environmental ethics, whether it's uh, people like uh, Maya Lin or, or Mel Chin, but it's also had an enormous impact on the practice of landscape architecture. And that in some ways is what's most interesting to me now. And it's not so much the importance of a kind of formal language that the land artists developed. It's more an issue of uh, raising questions about the experience of time and space in landscape. Mm -hmm. And so artists uh, like Jim Terrell, James Terrell or uh, uh, Richard Serra, uh, I think, have had, an, had, have had a large impact in uh, terms of stressing an awareness of the bodily, of, uh, an awareness of bodily movement through space over time. So I think sculpture has helped to provide a kind of language of spatial experience, of temporal experience, that's carried over in quite interesting ways into landscape architecture. So you have some people... Um, sort of exploring the, the formal language of land art, um, but which is 
interesting, but more interesting, I think, is this growing awareness of landscape architecture as a kind of sculptural field uh, where spatial configurations create a kind of awareness of movement through space over time. So this, that kind of sculptural language has become um, more pervasive in landscape architecture. And that's probably the most interesting legacy of land art to me. Between the, the years 1974 and 1978, you were helping curate an exhibition at the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden entitled Probing the Earth Contemporary Land Projects. Was this your first foray into the, the field of, uh, or the world of land art? And was this a real pivotal, was this exhibition and this work real uh, pivotal moment? Well, it certainly was for me. And that exhibition, I think, was only the second museum exhibition devoted to land art. There had been one at the Andrew Dixon White Museum at Cornell University in the mm -hmm. late 60s, 69, I think it was. And mine was the second museum exhibition devoted to land art. And to some extent, it, I think it, it, it was a time when museums were still a little bit resistant to things that were going outside, going on outside their own walls outside the walls of, of, uh, of uh, galleries and studios. And so, uh, you know, it was a, the first of a series of documentary exhibitions about art that was taking place outside the confines of the typical art space. So I think, you know, I don't know that it necessarily changed museum practice, but it was a small uh, effort to get museums to be responsive mm -hmm. to what was actually going on out in the world. How did, you, how did you make an exhibit about work that was not necessarily in its place? The way you would most design exhibitions, through uh, documentation, photographs of the built work, uh, drawings, models. Um, but most of the artists also did sculpture. Of, so there were commissions so there were in place? Not commissioned, but we borrowed sculptures that were mm -hmm. related to the work. In Smithson's case, uh, there were drawings to show, um, there were the non-site sculptures, um, and in Michael Heiser's case, there were the geometric sculptures that he did that related very much to the work he was doing in the landscape. So it was an, uh, a mixture of, uh, of uh, works of art and uh, documentation of the outdoor projects. And were the artists eager to, to participate, to bring their work back into the gallery? Mm, for the most part, but there was a certain amount of ambivalence about it um, uh, because I think that they really were uh, wanting to make a point about engaging with real space and engaging with uh, with real um, the, the real qualities and characteristics of the landscape. Uh, so there was a certain kind of ambivalence about it, but for the most part, mm -hmm. who's going to turn down a museum <laughs> show, right? <laughs> Do you think we've lost that ambivalence? Or the, the, the world of land art has lost that ambivalence, that now that it's broken out of the barriers of the white walls of the gallery, that it's very easy to bring it back in? Uh, I, think, I think art is, is uh, I think land art is less polemical about that particular issue right now. Um, and the polemic has shifted instead to matters of, in, of environmental concern rather than matters of museum practice or gallery mm -hmm. practice. Your Earthworks book has introduced land art 
in a sense, to the field of landscape architecture. It is a resource and reference for many of the young practitioners. Has it been hard to move beyond earthworks? For me, no. Uh, there's always lots of other things to do <laughs> and lots of other things to think about. And I'm, uh, I'm kind of a sponge in the sense that I'm, you know, I, I'm enormously interested in so many aspects of, of cultural expression. And, and there have been lots of other books about land art since that in some ways, uh, well, I don't think mine is obsolete. Um, certainly the discussion is much larger now than it was when Earthworks first came out in 84. And I've kind of followed a trajectory that traces its influence on the public space and on the practice of landscape architecture. And others have pursued it in other ways, much more within the language of art. So... Um, you know, I've been happy to sort of let that go because there are lots of other people interested in it. And and I've sort of made it my business to go find other things that are analogous to land art in the 70s. That is, things that are escaping other people's attention. Such as dirty work. Such as dirty work. <laughs> Which is a, an exhibition you recently curated with Christian Worthman here at the GST. Yes. Um, trans, trans, the transformation of... Transforming, Transforming the, the landscape, landscape of, of non-formal non cities in the Americas. It's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, it's an exhibition that looks at the various strategies that are being de developed across Latin America for trying to improve the conditions of, of squatter settlements uh, in, um, in, in, in Latin America. So it... Uh, these settlements are variously known as informal or non-formal settlements, uh, squatter settlements, um, shanty towns, uh, and they're beset with all sorts of uh, environmental problems. And so, um, their locations on unstable sites, whether they be floodplains or steep slopes, um, they're flood-prone. They're often on toxic sites. So there are all kinds of uh, environmental problems here that need addressing. And so the exhibition looks at strategies that are being developed across the continent, ranging from large-scale infrastructure upgrades, improvements to sanitary infrastructure and transportation infrastructure, to much smaller scale, almost acupunctural insertions of uh, improved public space, improved recreation facilities, uh, facilities for employment generation for markets, things like that. Um, and it, so a show that, looks at, that looked at work being done in Rio, Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires, uh, Bogota, Caracas, Mexico City, and Tijuana. Again, at a range of scales and uh, a variety of different strategies. And how do we place that into the North American practice? And how has... Um outsiders we can begin to uh, either inform or to affect the the, the way South America is, is developing in these non-formal cities? Well, in some ways, South America, I think, provides a model for, the, for looking at uh, ways of improving non-formal settlements. Um, uh, there's quite a bit of attention being paid to this phenomenon in Latin America now. And so it's a sort of laboratory that I think well, we could all benefit by looking at. Of course, the problems of the low-income community aren't restricted to Latin America, mm -hmm. and there are uh, 
problems of low-income settlements in this country that haven't that have landscape uh, elements. Um, the you know one you know the the uh, Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans, for example. You know there is a classic case of a of a uh, of environmental problems intersecting with a low-income community um, that needs some sort of uh, landscape uh, solution. So there are these kinds of problems even in, in North America, and some of the solutions being developed in Latin America might be applicable to, to uh, squatter communities in other parts of the world, whether it's Africa or South Asia or uh, Southeast Asia. But the, I think the important point is that this is um, over half the world's population now lives in cities. Um, a third of those people live in uh, conditions that are, are uh, characterized by uh, very high density, very inadequate housing, inadequate access to clean water and sanitary infrastructure, um, and, and uh, problems of land tenure. So this is a huge global problem and it's something that is increasingly uh, uh, of concern to students um, and I think it's increasingly in, uh, something that the profession needs to address. It's another, in a way, it's another instance of something that uh, I think isn't getting adequate attention and so one of the objectives of the exhibition was to draw attention to uh, the the global character of the problem, and also to begin to suggest a, a kind of toolkit of approaches that might be tried uh, around the world. Yeah. Now, given that the audience here at the GSD is relatively small, um, how do you how do you foresee that your toolkit being better disseminated uh, across these regions, either South America? Uh, Africa, Asia. Uh, what's the next step? Well, we're we're a very s small part of <laughs> addressing the problem. I mean, we've we've tried uh, we uh, have have tried to disseminate the information. Some um, uh, there's a uh, special section of the Harvard Design Magazine in the current uh, Spring '08 issue devoted to um, the designers' efforts to upgrade squatter settlements. But I think it's 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 a huge problem, and the solutions are are incremental. And this is one small increment in terms of uh, of uh, getting a discussion going here at the school, and then uh, projecting the discussion out through the Harvard Design Magazine, possibly through a book. And then uh, I'm hopeful that the students um, that have been involved in these kinds of issues here at the school will. Uh, will spread the word and get involved in projects like this. Already several of our students are. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, some, some of our former students are working in a settlement in Nairobi called Kibera. Teddy Cruz has been active in a studio here this semester uh, and is working in a community in Nicaragua. So I think people are, are beginning to catalyze uh, attention and efforts and um, you know, we and I and and we are hopeful that enthusi you know, that the energy will build. Have you been coupling the research with seminar or studio? Yeah, studio both work? Christian Berthman and I have. I've I've taught a 
I taught a studio here on a settlement in Buenos Aires uh, in the fall of 05. And then uh, for two semesters after that, uh, taught a seminar on the on, on uh, low-income settlements around the world. And then Christian Berthmann has been teaching a, a course here this semester on well, what he calls green infrastructure for non-formal cities, um, efforts to upgrade infrastructure in a way that's uh, sustainable. What kind of impact did your students or do your students play within this research? Oh, quite a lot. I mean, uh, my involvement in this is really a response to student initiatives. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in the social agency of design these days, which I'm, I'm really glad to see. Uh, and, and it was through a former student that I got involved in teaching this, uh, the studio in Buenos Aires. And it's really a response to, to uh, student demand in a way that, that I taught the seminars and that Christian and I organized the exhibition. You've made a big shift from earthwork to dirty work, mm -hmm. and you've migrated through the territories of sculpture, environmental art, gardens, public spaces, and now low-income settlements. Could you talk to us about this, um, this curious migration? Well, there are... <laughs> uh, it is a curious migration. Um, it's made some sense to me along the way. I, it may be less <laughs> apparent to others the, uh, how, what kind of sense it makes. Um, but there are several things that tie it together. Uh, first of all, uh, there's uh, a very consistent interest in how people inhabit different landscapes, whether it's artists engaging with the space of the American West or whether it's uh, people living on the steep forested hillsides of the Chijuca National Park in Rio. I'm interested in how uh, people inhabit particular landscape spaces and for what, what purposes. So there is a kind of thread there. Another thread is um, that, as I've said, I'm, I'm really interested in bringing people's attention to, to cultural phenomenon that I think are undervalued um, or um, uh, understudied. And so there's a lot going on in the world that, that escapes conventional notice. And so it's been one of my objectives to um, draw people's attention to things that, that they are not seeing that I think they should see. And then I have a, a, a particular interest in, um, in cultural adaptations that might be termed vernacular. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how people of relatively limited means um, adapt culturally. Um, and and uh, how, in quite difficult circumstances, they managed not merely to survive but thrive. And so, in the last half dozen years, I've done exhibitions of quilts from G's Bend, Alabama, a small all-black uh, community along the um, a along the river in near Selma, and this exhibition on on uh, the landscape of non-formal settlements in Latin America. So all those, those would seem to be very different kinds of projects. Uh, it's some of the same socioeconomic territory, 
But more importantly, it's about cultural adaptation. It's about how people in difficult circumstances um, um, uh, survive culturally mm -hmm. and how, um, um, uh, and particularly how they adapt to particular uh, uh, geographical uh, as well as economic conditions. Tell us a little bit about these quilts from from the women of G's Bend. Sure. What what makes them so special? What makes G's Bend remarkable is that it's a, a very isolated community uh, that um, has this incredibly rich uh, quilting tradition. Uh, there are you know maybe seven hundred people in the town, um, but you know a hundred of the women uh, are really accomplished quilt makers, and this is a it's a, a long-standing tradition. So there's something remarkable about the kind of quality of the wor work coming out of there and the sort of density of it. And then uh, it's a particularly good example of, uh, of, of, of a particularly African-American kind of quilt making. In most quilt making traditions, the goal is to copy a pattern uh, as closely as possible. In G's Bend and in African-American quilting generally, uh, the goal is to break the pattern. Uh, to improvise on it, to uh, make substitutions of, of, uh, of material or pattern uh, so that each quilt is distinct. And there's a kind of uh, uh, friendly competition among the women there uh, to improvise on each other's quilts, to do each other one better, um, to do something that's uh, that much more um, uh, inventive. And in that sense, these quilts are like uh, contemporary art, uh, like a lot of uh, abstract geometric art. And although they start with some familiar patterns, a pattern of concentric squares known as the housetop or of uh, pieces uh, stitched at right angles in a sort of log cabin pattern, um, they, uh, they make a point of breaking those patterns. So there's an incredible formal inventiveness and uh, material inventiveness to them. Has the material or materiality of these patterns moved out into other uh, other media uh, garden or clothing design uh, well one of the things that interests me is that uh, the the strategies that lead to this quilting um, are evident in other aspects of the culture of the place so on the one hand there's this strategy of salvage where old clothes um, old work clothes or field dresses or bandanas uh, get turned into quilts and in, in this sort of inventive or improvisatory way. And you see the same kind of thing going on in terms of uh, building and in terms of yard art. Uh, a, a lot of the older buildings you can see are pieced together from, from uh, fragments of material, whether it's boards or corrugated metal. Um, you can look at the side of a building and it looks just like a quilt. It's, it's patched together or pieced together out of elements that are found and salvaged. Uh, so this aesthetic of salvage, of recycling, um, cuts across different forms of cultural practice. You can see it in yard art, too. There are accumulations of, uh, of uh, materials in people's yards put together as kind of freeform sculpture that, again, you know, they're salvaged... Um, uh, farm equipment or ropes or chains or um, tires or assembled into uh, kind of yard mm -hmm. art uh, 
a form of sort of free form sculpture. And does the community recognize these overlaps between the, the quilts, which now have probably achieved a, a status of high art to the yard art or um, salvage uh, structures? Well, that's a tricky question because, um, you know, the women of Giesben didn't necessarily think of themselves as artists until people started showing their work in museums and galleries. For them, it was a, a utilitarian form and a form of gift exchange in a way. I mean, that they, they would make quilts for each other for weddings or birthdays or... Um, and it was also a form of economic exchange. They, they would make quilts for sale, and the ones for sale were typically more, more regularized in a way. The more inventive ones they often kept for themselves or gave to each other. So I'm not sure they... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they would agree that the, this strategy of recycling or salvaging and this sort of aesthetic of, of accumulation was consistent across different um, aspects of their life, whether it's quilting or yard art or architecture. But I don't know that they would talk would have talked about it in terms of art and, uh, until fairly recently. And now that their quilts have taken on this other other status due to the exhibition and publication, the book <clears throat> has it changed the dynamics of the the small group of women who are making the quilts? To some extent, yes, but um, probably not not hugely. Among the beneficial things, a lot of, of uh, younger women are getting involved in quilt making now because they uh, see it um, both as a sort of creative outlet and as an economic opportunity. There is a, a, a quilt collective that's been formed there, and a lot of the women are participating in that and sharing uh, sort of in in marketing and sales and and sharing in the economic benefit of the of the quilting sales. That said, Gisben remains a small town a long way from anywhere, um, and it's uh, uh, you know the, there hasn't been a huge economic impact on the community. There's been uh, quite a lot of, of benefit to some of the women, a little bit to most of them, but you know it's still. 20 miles down a one, you know, 20 miles down a dead end road. <laughs> and uh, so there's not a huge amount of through traffic. Although John McCain was there last week uh, on a campaign appearance and apparently bought three quilts. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm not sure he'll get many votes in Jeeps then, but. <laughs> we were listening to Terrograms, and our guest is John Beardsley. John is a senior lecturer in the Department of landscape architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, as well as the Director of Garden and Landscape Studies at Dumbarton Oaks. You've written on the work of Walter Hood, Isama Noguchi, Mario Shetnin, Maya Lin, George Hargrave, Michael Van Valkenburg, in, in exploring these contemporary practices and designers. Do you take the role of critic, historian, theorist, well, I have a hard time separating all those roles. I mean, the theorist in me asks, why are they doing what they're doing? Um, the historian in me thinks about what are the precedents for this and what, what are the contexts in which you can look at it. 
And the critic in me asks, was it worth doing and did they do it well? <laughs> and uh, so, well, I recognize that those are distinct areas of, of uh, speculation or distinct practices. Um, I, I find that I, um, I move pretty freely between them. And, that, and, I, and that's really important to me, to be able to uh, uh, look at things in the theoretical, or what I would term a sort of intellectual context, to look at things in a historical context, and then uh, to ask the, the, uh, the necessary critical questions. Does your role as, as curator, perhaps a more objective role, um, affect your ability to be critic, perhaps a more subjective role? Well, again, there's a real blurring for me between a curatorial and a critical role, and, and I, I don't think there's anything objective about uh, curatorial exercise. <laughs> uh, I mean, you're, you're really making critical judgments every step of the way, whether it's in selecting an idea for an exhibition, selecting the artists who are involved, uh, selecting the particular works that will represent those artists or designers. So it's very much a subjective exercise and, and, uh, and very much a critical exercise. How does your work enrich the contemporary practice of landscape architecture? Well, I hope it does. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'm the one who should say, you need some critic to critique me and say, uh, you know, is he, is he making a contribution or is he just muddying the water? <laughs> well, what type of role should someone like yourself be taking relative to the, 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 the work that's getting designed and constructed today? Oh, that's a good question. Um, should it be a curatorial or a, a, a kind of curatorial role? Should it be a critical role? I hope in the most general sense that I am contributing to um, the development of a, of, a, of a significant discussion around and about the contemporary practice of landscape architecture. I mean, I hope that the range of interests and the range of enthusiasms that I bring to the table, uh, whether it's in the, you know, the history of landscape generally, uh, whether it's in uh, land art, whether it's in the cultural expression of low-income people. Uh, uh, I hope that all those things um, contribute to an understanding of landscape as something uh, very, very important uh, and very, very rich. And I mean that rich intellectually, rich spatially, rich materially, and rich in terms of its impact on, on, on cultural debate and on the formation of cultural values. So landscape matters, and I hope that, um, if nothing else, what I convey is, a, is an understanding of that, that it's uh, what we do in landscape and how we live in the landscape and how we affect it is enormously important in so many ways. In, in your article from the Harvard Design Magazine uh, 2000 issue, I believe it may have been the fall, um, you conclude by stating emphatically that landscape architecture will prove the most consequential art of our time. Do I, you... I think I might have said the most consequential public art of our time. Uh, <laughs> and that's a significant qualifier uh, in the sense that 
um, there's an there's still a lot of very significant art being made in other contexts, mm -hmm. whether it's um, art for museums or galleries or art, art for private consumption, um, whether it's film or uh, or music. You know, there 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 are hugely significant things going on in all artistic disciplines. But um, I think what I meant to say was that landscape architecture is emerging as the most significant public art of our mm -hmm. time. And by that I mean uh, that, um, again, this idea that um, landscape architecture participates in articulating cultural values about landscape, and that's terribly important. But more than that, I think it's, it's becoming clear that landscape is the principal organizing medium of the, of the built environment. So whether it's parks in wild nature or whether it's functioning metropolitan ecosystems, um, uh, having a habitable and uh, workable and healthy landscape is just about the most important part of, of, uh, of, of uh, building a decent environment. So in that sense, I mean, I think landscape is so fundamental to, to where we live and how we live uh, from managing stormwater in the city and uh, air quality in the city to a more sane and sustainable way of occupying the suburbs to uh, um, managing the rural landscape to uh, uh, creating biosphere reserves. I mean, the, the, um, and, and landscape architecture is involved in all those things. And as a consequence, I think, yes, it's positioned to be um, one of the most important, if not the most important public art of our time. Are there any examples that jump, jump, to, your, jump to your head? Oh, there's, there, are, there are many of them. And in some ways, it's not fair to single out particular uh, projects or particular uh, uh, designers because... No, you can Go ahead. You <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, um, the things I've written about in the past are, are uh, uh, projects like um, the restoration of the uh, historic landscape in Zochimilco, a project that Mario Shetnan was involved in. He designed the Park Ecologico de Zochimilco, but uh, it was part of a much larger uh, project to. Uh, manage stormwater, to treat sewage, to restore a historic uh, canal landscape that predates the, the uh, uh, Spanish conquest of Mexico. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a project that was enormously rich in, in, in uh, terms of ecosystem management, in terms of historic preservation, and in terms of, of, uh, of uh, restoring a, a productive landscape. It's a landscape where a lot of flowers are grown for Mexico City. And its formal language, how is this superimposed within these landscape processes? The formal language, in some ways, for the larger ecosystem management project was already there. This system of rectangular uh, islands and canals, mm -hmm. linear canals. Uh, and into that was added uh, um, a, a park that deploys some of the same quite simple geometric language. There's a circular visitor center and a kind of gridded... Um, uh, flower market and recreation facilities. Uh, so there's a very s uh, simplified geometric language that at once was sort of attuned to the historical context, but also uh, I think expressive of some more recent um, Mexican modernist um, ideas, uh, as in the work of Luis Barragan, for example. 
So that's one project that I think exemplifies the complexity of recent landscape architecture in terms of this layering of, of ecological management, of historic preservation, of, of uh, creating a, a working landscape that um, involves both recreation and, and uh, agricultural production. And all of that in the context of a city, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, you, it's, it's an urban ecosystem uh, that involves uh, some amount of agricultural production. From 1996 to 2000, you, you wrote for the Landscape Architecture magazine a column entitled, or you participated in the column entitled Critic at Large. In retrospect, would you say that your criticism was very strong? And did you receive backlash for um, raising critique within the field, which might, uh, in fact, lack that? Well, let's see. For the most part, I felt that, uh, <laughs> in some ways, I thought that there wasn't enough response. There just it really isn't all that much of a tradition of, of critical debate in landscape architecture. And so in some ways, people either didn't respond or didn't know how to respond. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think I meant to be provocative in a number of occasions. And um, I think I was successfully provocative <laughs> at times. And I address things like questions of race and space, uh, 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 questions of the commercialization or commodification of landscape, as in Disney's celebration. I tried to address topics that I thought mattered. And sometimes I got, sometimes, uh, I got a response, and often people were, sometimes people were quite upset by mm -hmm. what I wrote, uh, I guess because they thought I was uh, violating a, you know, idea that we need to be sort of polite to each other all the time. I don't think I was impolite, um, but I did mean to provoke discussion. I think probably the the um, strongest reaction came to the piece I wrote about Disney's celebration mm -hmm. and the, the extent to which I thought uh, Disney was sort of controlling people's lives there, not just on the level of design, which of course they are doing in terms of allowing certain kinds of houses, but in terms of landscape, they're allowing certain kinds of planting in certain places, and 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 all that is an aspect of a of a powerful ambition to control the environment. Now, people live there voluntarily, and uh, and uh, in some ways, uh, having the Disney brand attached to their home means it's uh, got a kind of value or cachet economic value or social cachet that, that an ordinary house might not. Mickey Mouse stamp of approval. Right. And as a consequence, it's probably more valuable. So, you know, I'm not necessarily challenging people for living there. And I certainly respect that your home is probably your biggest investment. And why not protect your investment by having the Mickey Mouse stamp of approval? But there is a, an amazing level of control exercised not just at Disney celebration but in a lot of these gated communities and you know they're symptomatic of a kind of increasing segregation of space between uh, the sort of uh, protected enclave and um, at the other extreme uh, these kind of squatter settlements or favelas that I've been looking at I mean those are two sides of the same phenomenon in a way um, they're the the uh, the winners and losers in the kind of uh, uh, global economic landscape. Mm -hmm. Back to the 
idea of critique. There's been a practiced and honed tradition of critique in the field of art uh, as well as architecture. Why do you think it doesn't exist in landscape architecture and how do you think it can be encouraged? Well, I think part of what you're doing contributes to that, which is getting people's voices on tape and uh, uh, getting a discussion whether going. Whether they like it or not. Yeah, whether they like it or not. <laughs> Some of us don't. Um, but, um, I mean, landscape architecture as a profession is only 100 years old. Of course, the manipulation of landscape has been around for as long as people have been. Um, but it's only in the last 100 years that we've started to recognize it as a distinct discipline. And there isn't the theoretical, uh, there isn't the body of theoretical texts that other arts have. So there's a, there's a much longer history in the other arts, both of, of uh, theoretical discourse and critical discourse. So it's partially to be explained by the relative youth of the profession. Uh, but landscape architecture has also been marginalized. And in some ways it's because, well, there are all kinds of ways to speculate about why landscape architecture has been marginalized. Um, and uh, uh, that's probably a whole discussion in and of itself. I think one of the things that needs to be done, and one of the things I've tried to do, is affirm the importance of landscape architecture and, and affirm the importance of landscape more generally in terms of cultural discourse. Landscape architects need to <laughs> come out of the closet and be more forceful uh, about their competence and about the importance of what they're doing. And I think landscape architects do have the competence to manage some of the big problems uh, that we're confronting, whether it's adaptation to climate change, raising, rising sea levels, whether it's uh, managing stormwater, um, managing river systems. I mean, these are the things that landscape architects are, are being trained to do. And landscape architects need to assert their competence I think they need to be more proactive in identifying problems and stepping forward and saying, you know, we have the expertise to deal with this and we should be part of any team that addresses this. So it's partially a fault within the discipline itself, I think, which, I th which has been a little bit slow to be uh, uh, assertive in, in, uh, in, in these cultural debates. Have you seen a change in the past 15 or 20 years since you've entered the field? Yeah, and uh, some of that change comes from within, but some of it comes from the outside. I mean, some of it comes from uh, architects and, and planners who are saying, landscape is what matters here. And uh, um, let's think about landscape strategies uh, and, and ecological process as a way of organizing uh, urban space and and let's think about natural systems even as a way of organizing a building uh, so how are the how are the metaphors of landscape um, uh, especially ecological metaphors relevant to uh, the processes of urban design and the processes of building and occupying buildings so to some extent, we're, landscape architecture is being pressed from outside, and that's a good thing. So some from the inside feel like it's a co-opting, that, for example, the landscape urbanism is, is a, a very old theme, very old subject that's being reframed for 
manipulation from the outside in and uh, yeah but uh, my feeling is you can only be co-opted if you allow yourself to be co-opted mm -hmm. and sure architects are, and and urbanists are um, saying we're competent to deal with landscape but landscape architects need to demonstrate that they're equally competent if not more competent mm -hmm. and and uh, um, get more involved in, in urban design and urban planning projects and even get more designed in um, making better buildings. Buildings are, in some ways, are, uh, need to be part of a living system. They need to be a better part of the environment, whether it's collecting and using stormwater in a building or improving natural light and ventilation. Uh, all, those are, uh, uh, all those have a landscape dimension to them. And how buildings connect to functioning urban ecosystems. Is this being taught at the university level? The building um, tectonics, uh, mechanics, or morphology, typology? Is this happening in the landscape architecture departments? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are trying to bring that into the discussion about design these days. I mean, there's an increasingly interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary focus. Um, there's an increasing focus on sustainability and adaptability. Uh, and all these things are having an impact, you know, not only on the practice of landscape architecture, but also on the practice of architecture. Mm -hmm. uh, and the whole green building phenomenon, I think, suggests a kind of improved, su suggests an improvement to the troubled relationship that's always existed mm -hmm. between landscape and architecture. Mm -hmm. What's curious is I see more landscape architects informing architecture programs. And very few architects coming in and teaching architecture within landscape programs. Is this something that you've, you've seen or noticed as well? I'd say there are increasing numbers of interdisciplinary studios, uh, and that's a good thing. There is surely room for improvement. There's plenty of room for improvement. And whether that involves more architects teaching courses to landscape architects or more landscape architects teaching courses to architects, uh, more shared courses, more core courses on um, green design and its implications across the disciplines. I'm not sure exactly where to go from here, but the issue of uh, disciplinary specialization has um, been a recurring one in the design fields and it seems to be a focus of renewed attention and and I think especially in the context of uh, concerns about sustainability and adaptability some kind of cross-disciplinary response is not just desirable but necessary. To wrap up our conversation and perhaps tie some of the loose ends together where is your work taking you in the next in the next couple of years? Well, uh, I will continue to pursue... <laughs> I keep a lot of balls in the air all the time. <laughs> and I'm sure to drop some of them, and I'm sure to continue juggling some of them. Um, and I'm sure there are, there, there are balls that are yet to be thrown to me <laughs> that uh, I will do my best to uh, catch or to hit or whatever, <laughs> or to swing at and miss. <laughs> But I think what, what's consistent in my work is, is a commitment to advancing the discourse around landscape architecture and, and advancing 
the, the importance of landscape more generally um, in cultural d debates. So count on me to keep doing that in one way or the other, whether it's in the context of art or landscape architecture or environmental sculpture. Or, I think all those things will continue to be of importance to me um, with a maybe slightly shifting emphasis at different times. Great. Well, it's been wonderful to have you on our show. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for taking the time, and we look forward to your next <laughs> your, your next body of work. <laughs> Thank you very much. I do, too. I wonder what it will be. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> John Beardsley is a senior lecturer in the Department of Landscape Architecture at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, as well as a director of Garden and Landscape Studies at Dumbarton Oaks. Thank you for joining us for the 19th Dispatch of Telegrams. Join us soon for conversations with Rene Bihan, principal at the SWA Group, San Francisco, Ken Smith, designer of the Rooftop Gardens for the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, and Alexander Reeford, founder and director of the Reeford Gardens and the Matisse International Garden Festival. To find out more about Telegrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books for their wonderful and still very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at www.thebooksmusic.com. This concludes our 19th dispatch of Terragrams. Gentlemen, good luck. I was without a job, without a salary. I, I was trying to get unemployment, and I was told it first kicks in after a few weeks. And I was busy looking for another job, and I also have a heart condition. And I told him I have a heart condition. I said, here, take a, a few dollars. I'm sorry this happened to you, just, but just leave me alone. I'm not the person who, who deposited us. Myself, April, Tammy, and Brad.
Rainbow, 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 rainbow